So I'm wondering this morning if you need to apologize to Jesus. There's a popular Christmas song, uh, a spiritual, and it's a bit of a, a corporate apology. These, these are the words, sweet little Jesus boy, they made you be born in a manger. Sweet little holy child, we didn't know who you were. Didn't know you'd come to save us, Lord. To take our sins away, our eyes were blind. We couldn't see. We didn't know who you were. We didn't know who you were. What about Jesus do you not know? Do I not know? What, what about Jesus do we not know rightly? What about Jesus do we know wrongly? And how does not knowing rightly or knowing wrongly or even not knowing at all impact the way we think and how we act? No doubt when we all stand before Jesus and see him in all his glory as scripture promises we will do, we will see him as he is, we may find that it's a red-faced moment for us. Please forgive me, Lord, I didn't know. Or, Lord, if I had only known. But that moment should not prevent us from seeking right now to know the Lord, the servant of the Lord in all his fullness. See, sometimes away in the manger, silent night on a holy night, it's easy for us to forget the fullness of who Jesus is and the power and the authority that belongs to him. And we begin to limit Jesus to sweetness, to think he's not a contender in this tough world in which we live. It's complicated. It's complex. And we begin to believe that he's not fit for it. He's so sweet. And so we exclude him from many parts of our lives. Forgive us, Lord. We didn't know who you were. You and I must seek the power of the Lord for all of our lives. Consider this. Who would you be? Who could you be if you knew Jesus in the fullness of his power? I'm thinking about that this morning as we come to Isaiah chapter 42. If you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn to that chapter in the Old Testament for our second week in this passage. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found Isaiah chapter 42, let's stand together to hear read the word of the living God. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, God himself speaking. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. 
Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray, Lord, that through your word, you aim to tell us the truth and to encourage our hearts, to show us what can be, to show us how it can be, not because of us, but because of you and who you are. So I pray now that you will bless this reading and hearing of your word as you promised to do. Father, through this time together, may we know you better. May we know you in the fullness of your power. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. In this passage, the Lord is taking away our excuse. Or excuses for saying, forgive me, Lord. I didn't know who you were. The Lord intends that you and I should know him very well. And so he says in verse 1, Behold my servant, the Messiah, who is Jesus the Christ. And when God says, Behold, interjection, my servant, he intends that you and I should look at him very closely and very carefully. Because all the decisions that we make in this life, all the things that you and I decide to do or, or not to do, all those decisions have to be made in light of who this servant is. Our reactions in this life to, to everything that comes our way, to, to what's good, to what's bad, to what's challenging, even to what's easy, we have to react to all those things in light of who the servant of the Lord is. And so God doesn't leave the identity of this servant up to us and our imaginations. This servant is not who we want him to be. This servant is who God says he is. This servant doesn't do what we want him to do. Behold, this servant does what God wants him to do. So God doesn't call us to blind trust here. There aren't many of you old enough to remember. But do you ever, you know what blind date, remember blind dating? Back in the days before social media, do you remember what that was like? See, you couldn't go to Facebook and look at a picture of your blind date ahead of time. All you could do is let your imagination go. And say, well, hopefully she'll look like this. But in a way, you dreaded that date because you knew in an instant when you saw her, you could be crushed. Knowing you had spent all that hoping time in vain. You didn't know what your date was going to be like. You just had to let your imagination go. Maybe she'll be like this. But then once again, you, you dreaded that moment of meeting your blind date because in an instant, all your hopes could be crushed. Lord, I hoped in vain. God doesn't leave his people to that kind of blind insecurity or disappointed hope. The people who need this servant, the people to whom Isaiah is writing, they have been taken by force. From their home and from their country. And they find themselves completely unsettled and insecure. 
as a minority group in a, a foreign country surrounded completely by unfamiliar people and unfamiliar behaviors and unfamiliar beliefs. These are people who would go down to the river and weep when they remembered everything that they had lost. And so these people needed real, definable hope if they were going to have hope at all. Their own imaginings would not be sufficient, and so God gives them what they need. He gives them this inspiring portrait of his servant. I could preach for weeks on the material just found in the first two verses of this chapter, and you know that I could do it. We could spend an entire sermon considering what it means for this servant, Jesus, to be upheld by God. As verse 1 says he is, this servant literally held in in the grasp of the Father like, like God's kingly scepter. This servant that God has sent to serve us has that kind of support, that kind of power. He's held in the hand of God. Forgive us, Lord, for not knowing, for being fearful. Forgive us, Lord, for not being more secure. You're held in, supported by the hand of God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Of everything that's now and for all eternity. We could dedicate an entire sermon to what it means for God to call the servant my chosen. Chosen. Now there's a word that makes the heart of a good Presbyterian palpitate. Chosen by God as it should. Because it reflects the the sovereign will of God. A will that is perfect and well-pleasing. No mistake has been made. God has not been forced to make do with what he he could, could find. This servant is deliberately chosen by God, sent by God to serve and give hope to his people. Forgive us, Lord, for, for forgetting that you have a perfect plan. Behold, your servant, your chosen, nothing in our lives is random. Nothing is willy-nilly. The Lord has a plan and a purpose. We could talk about how this servant, who he is and the service he renders, is the delight of the soul of his father. As verse 1 says that he is. How often do you think of the Lord as delightful? And all that goes into making a person a delight to be around, that's Jesus. He's a delight. We don't usually avoid or neglect people that we find delightful. We like being with them. We like being around them. And yet too often we neglect the Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for not seeing you as the delight that you are. Forgive us, Lord, for not making you first and foremost the delight of our souls. Verse 2 tells us that the, the, the servant has the Spirit of God on him. We could spend weeks and weeks talking about the Holy Spirit of God, who He is, and what He does. And when we had finished thinking about those things, we would probably have to say, forgive us, Lord, for not going out to change the world 
for Jesus' sake. Not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit, O God. These verses tell us the servant is a servant of justice. Because there's so little justice in the world, and because God's justice, the justice that his servant will establish, is so little understood, we could spend weeks talking about justice. And we would probably have to say, forgive us, Lord, for living our lives as if you are not just. As if you don't require us to be people of justice and mercy. We can't do all that this morning. Instead, I'm going to spend the rest of our time looking at a couple of the not statements that we find in verses 2 through 4. Because these not statements are what set the servant of the Lord apart from everyone else we've ever known. Sets him apart from every power we have ever seen in our lives. And it's because he is so different from everyone else, that we can have such hope. When, when we look around the world and when we see how ineffective it is to bringing real hope and lasting change, what, what we really need to behold is someone completely other, completely different. And then you and I need to, to transfer our allegiance and we need to transfer our hope to that king into that kingdom. So the verses before us, they readily lend themselves toward the view that Jesus is sweet. Just like the picture behind me. Sweet Jesus. And sweet can mean marked by gentleness or kindliness. It can mean dear or much loved. Sweet can mean pleasing to the mind or feelings. And, and Jesus is absolutely all of those things. But in our minds, sometimes sweetness equals softness. And because that's where our minds go, we wrongly think about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Soft and sweet cannot bring about a new world order. But guess what? That, that's why Jesus came. Soft and sweet cannot bring about a regime change in the world and in your heart. Your heart needs a, redeem, a regime change. So does mine. And that's why Jesus came. Now, we don't like to think of radical and regime change here at Christmas. It sounds too aggressive for our kindly Jesus and so we try to regain our equilibrium by thinking of a silent night, holy night. Or we think of passages like Matthew eleven, twenty-eight, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Be careful in interpreting this invitation as coming from a sweet or weak Jesus. Because you might have to apologize. Lord, forgive me, I didn't know who you were. Being gentle 
And being lonely simply means this, that Jesus is neither proud nor arrogant nor pretentious. He is the one who always points to the glory of his Father and is not a self-promoter. This does not make Jesus sweet or weak. It just makes Jesus confident in who he is. Confident in the mission he came to do, to bring about a regime change, to establish a new world order. Isaiah 53, with its talk about a lamb, often comes to our mind for the sweetness of Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. These verses speak of Jesus' innocence, not his weakness. They speak of Jesus' intentionality in coming to complete his mission. They speak of his strength in keeping quiet. He didn't open his mouth, and he kept moving toward the cross, not in weakness and not to shun it or run from it. He's not weak. He's strong, strong enough to be silent. Please forgive us, Lord, if we don't rightly know who you are. So having said that, we come to the first not statement in verse 2. Look there. He will not shout or cry out. Crowd is used here in the sense of wail. Cry out is what people do when their hope is gone. And when what they've pinned their hopes on suddenly is taken away from them. Let let me give you an example. It's Jacob and Esau. Jacob schemed with his mother to steal the birthright from Esau, the firstborn. We might say, so what? Big deal. It's just some words. But in that culture, it was a very big deal. That blessing going to the oldest was one of high honor. And it provided both position and power and wealth. Especially when it made you, as it would have made Esau, the third in the list of famous patriarchs. The list in scripture should have read this. Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But that's not the list. What is the list? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because the blessing was stolen. And when Esau went to his ailing father to receive that blessing, his father told Esau, I just gave the blessing to the one who just came and gave me food. And that one, he is the one that will be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out, same word, he wailed with exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But Isaac could not. And so this became one of those all is lost moments for Esau. It's gone. I can't get it back. And the grief and hopelessness was excruciating. See, the servant of the Lord will never wail. He'll never cry out in this way, not because he's sweet, but because his plans will never be thwarted. The Lord Jesus, the servant of God, will never be in an all-is-lost situation. 
because he is a servant of might and of power who will with unbelievable success accomplish all the Lord has given him to do. The cry will never come for him because he will never be without hope. Another example of cry. It's found in Isaiah 33. The powerful Assyrians are going to attack the northern kingdom of Israel. And that kingdom is going to fall and it's never going to rise again. And it appears that the Assyrians are going to get away with all that they have done. But God says, behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. Look, behold, God says, their heroes, heroes cry out. Their secretaries of state weep bitterly because their power has been crushed and their hope is gone. See, people always seem invincible until they're not, right? Not so with the servant of the Lord. He'll never need to cry out in this way. His power will never come to an end. He'll never be defeated. Isaiah describes it in this way in Isaiah chapter 9. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What other nation in all of human history can make that claim to be an everlasting kingdom? None can. Because none of them are led by the servant of the Lord. They do not have his zeal. They do not have his power. Forgive us, Lord, if we didn't know who you were. Forgive us, Lord, for allowing our fears to seem bigger than you. The word cry out can also mean to cry out for assistance. And we see that use over and over in the Old Testament. One tribe calls to another tribe, come and help me, come, support me in my fight against my enemies. It's the same as saying, hurry, help. The servant of the Lord is different. He is sufficient in and of himself. He does not need to cry out for help because he doesn't need anything. So listen, the equation is never Jesus plus something else because Jesus lacks nothing. I don't care what pictures you've seen or who's standing at a door knocking. Jesus is not pitiful. He's not beggarly or pleading. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking you're a pleading, pitiful Savior. The Lord does not need you. The Lord does not need me. The equation is always Jesus plus nothing. But in his grace and in his love, he accepts us. Isn't that good news? Pitiful, beggarly, pleading ones, that's us. We cannot do anything to add to the sacrifice that Jesus chose to make for us by willingly and by his own authority laying down his life so that he could take it up again. Nothing is lacking in the Lord. Please, Lord, forgive us for not finding our completeness 
in you. The second not phrase, the last one we're going to be able to get to. The servant of the Lord will not lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Now see, we don't know what to do with that. Because that's all we know. It seems that everyone around us is lifting up their voice, but not in praise of God. Did any of you follow a couple of months ago the tweets between Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren over her ancestry? Did you follow those tweets? Donald Trump tweets, Pocahontas, the bad version, sometimes referred to as Elizabeth Warren, is getting slammed. She took a bogus DNA test and it showed that she may be 1,024th, far less than the average American. Now Cherokee Nation denies her. DNA test is useless, even they don't want her phony. Elizabeth Warren. Speaking of family stories at Real Donald Trump, has one, two. It's the story of a second generation tax cheat who has handed, who has handed a $413 million inheritance through rich guy loopholes and outright criminal fraud. Donald Trump. Now that her claims of being of Indian heritage have turned out to be a scam and a lie, Elizabeth Warren should apologize for perpetrating this fraud against the American public. Elizabeth Warren, if at real Donald Trump, a cowardly elitist who's never known or cared what life is like for anyone who's ever lived outside of a skyscraper in Manhattan, wants to talk about authenticity, well, then, let's talk about who's really pretending to be someone they're not. <laughs> this is crying loud. Would you agree? The, the highest people in our country and the highest offices back and forth. This is what we've grown accustomed to. And this is how we believe things get done. You loudly promote yourself and you loudly denigrate other people. It's always been that way. Now, I should know better. Not really. I should know better than to mention political figures. Because once you do that, people start lining up behind their favorite but the fact of the matter is, these words in Isaiah, they find their meaning in a political setting. Political powers were at work during the time that God gave Isaiah these words. Feuding nations fought one another. The servant will be a king with a new regime. He will not rule over just one small country, but over the entire world. The servant of God will really accomplish this but not by lifting up his voice. He need not promote himself. The servant rests in the hand of the Father and will allow the Father to do what is right. And guess what? God always does what is right. Unchangingly so. The servant of God simply submitted. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every tongue, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did not need to raise his voice or to make it heard in the street. The servant of the Lord is a different kind of king for a different kind 
of kingdom. His motives are never selfish or self-promoting or for self-interest. He always works for the interest of the other. others. Always he works for the glory of God. And that doesn't make him weak, but powerful, in control, not driven by his own passion, but driven by passion for the will of God. When they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter drew his sword to fight, Jesus said, put your sword away. Do you think I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. The answer, of course, is yes. Yes, Lord, we believe that you cannot do that. So we'll take out our sword. We believe you can't. But in the moment that Jesus looked most passive, allowing himself to be arrested, he was the most strong, not calling on thousands upon thousands of angels to rescue him, not crying aloud in the street, this is the servant from first to last, putting before all things the glory of God. He is so other from anyone else we know, any other leader we've ever seen, because he has come to establish a new regime in this world and in your heart. Not one led by self-interest and self-promotion. That kind of regime, which is the only kind we have ever seen in this world, is not sustainable. How could it be? What Darwin wrote will only ever be true at the end of the day. It's survival of the fittest. Jesus has the power to set up a new kind of regime. To rule over a different kind of kingdom. And he has the power to do it. If you and I will have any hope in this world that seems to be at loose ends. Do you agree? Does the world feel like it's at loose ends? Do you think so? The only hope we have is for a servant like this. Someone so different, so other than this world. Someone with real power. Someone who can give real hope and real help. That's who we have in Jesus, the servant of the Lord. So behold him. Because we need to be part of his kingdom. We need to transfer our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to make the servant of the kingdom the center of all we do. So yes, the night might have been silent. It might have been holy. But behold, the manger welcomed a powerful Savior. One who will reign forever and ever in all places for all time. Nothing will be outside of his reign. Forgive us, Lord, when we live like we don't know that this is who you are. And help us, Lord, to live like we have a powerful Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are, you are a king of all power and all might. Father, we thank you that you are powerful, you are almighty in the context of of love and grace. But weak, Lord, you never are. Soft, Lord, you never are. You are the king of all glory and all power. Father, we need you in our lives. We need for you to make that regime change in our hearts. We need to be the ones to stop ruling our lives. 
We need to be ones who stop thinking of ourselves and our interests and our needs first and foremost. And Lord, instead, think about you, the King of glory. How to bring glory to you. How to be faithful. How to be allegiant to you. How, how to follow you and to go into this world to, to establish your kingdom by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Lord, you are powerful to enable us to do these bold and powerful things. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning to see you in the fullness of who you are, the fullness of your power. And Lord, may we, we, may we be different because of it. Lord, may we be less fearful of this world and more hopeful because, Lord, we know that you reign right now and for all eternity and that we are part of your kingdom. Help us live like we believe those things to be true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.